From the sea to the spinifex, the Northern Territory really is a kaleidoscope of colour. The weather isn't just experienced, it's lived. The heat, the humidity, well, it can be pretty oppressive, stifling, even maddening, a place described as a law unto itself. In Catherine 12 years ago, Roy Photo was murdered by Chris Malishko and Darren Halfpenny. He's otherwise known as Spider. The motive was clear and so was the method. But was Chris's best friend, Zach Grieve, also there or did he chicken out? Either way, the Northern Territory's mandatory sentencing laws meant that Zach Grieve was locked up and in fact still is. Award-winning journalist Dan Box investigated the case in his new book, The Man Who Wasn't There. Hi, Dan. Hi, good to be here. The book and the story really reminded me of that sort of gothic nature of the film and novel Wake in Fright. I'm sure you're aware of this. I'm this aware amazing... of it. I've been too scared to watch it. <laughs> it has that feel to it, the heat and the lawlessness and the knowledge of really that you are a long, long way from everything, particularly help. Tell me about Catherine as the setting for this story. Catherine defies expectations because, if I'm honest, coming up from a, a southern city, so going up from Sydney to report there, I had this whole southern city prejudice that I was kind of going to a backwater, a frontier town, a rough, tough place where bad things happened. <clears throat> Catherine's really nice. It's a lovely little town. It's also a rough, tough place where bad things happen, but at its heart, it is just good people living their the best life they can live amongst this incredible, uninhabitable, tough, dry, sharp, kind of awful outback that surrounds it. And I remember driving down from Darwin, so flew up to Sydney, drove down to Darwin to Catherine. It's about a three-hour drive, it's not far, but you lose radio reception. And so suddenly you're listening to the radio and it just fades out into static and you're on your own. And you drive in silence. I beg to differ. I think you can get Radio National <laughs> between Catherine and, and Darwin. But that's an argument for another well, day. Perhaps it's I wasn't very... listening to the right station. <laughs> but the point remains, like, I had this moment, at least in my head, that, OK, I'm now going into the void. The unknown. And you get there and then you come back into this little pocket of civilization. And, look, it is a beautiful town. It's surrounded by natural beauty. But it is also a place that I think if you grow up there, it's quite hard to get out. Quite hard to get out mentally and quite hard to get out in terms of building a life outside it. And I think that was part of what happened here. You had this murder that happened and you had these three or two men that committed it who were products of that environment and that sense of kind of, not hopelessness, but limited horizons that were limited by the boundless expanse that literally just traps Catherine in on either side. You're quite open about admitting at first that you didn't really want to do this story, but it was Judge Dean Mildren admitting that Zach Greaves' life sentence was unjust that sort of first hooked you, wasn't it? I'm quite open in the book, not that I didn't want to do this story, but that I did it for the wrong reasons. So I wanted to do this story, and you're right, I read this magazine piece in Good Weekend magazine about this case where it quoted a line from the judge saying... The judge said, I don't think Zach was there when the murder happened. I think he pulled out at the last minute. But due to the way the laws were written in the Territory, he had to send him down for life. And life means life in the Territory. 
with a minimum non-parole period of 20 years. And the judge said, I think this is an injustice, but I have no choice. And I looked at that and I thought, what kind of backwater justice system have you got where a judge handing down a sentence is saying, I think this is wrong? And I wanted to do that story, but I wanted to do it, if I'm entirely honest, because I wanted to do a big, important story and win an award. <laughs> and... <laughs> And I'm glad you Such laugh because it's actually really bad. Refreshing honesty refreshing. to have an author say that I was, I'm just in it for the accolades. It so. has taken me so long <laughs> to get to the point where I was prepared to say that. So the process of writing this book was entirely horrible. I hated it. I hated it for several years. So it took me a very long time to write this book for reasons we can get onto later. But most of the process was agonising and I hated it. And I wrote 40,000 words, half the book, and I junked it because it was terrible. And I wrote another version that was close to 80,000 words. And I ended up just tearing that up and taking bits out and reusing it. But, wow. And then I finally did a version that was getting towards usable. And I was about to submit it to the publisher. And I had this moment where I sat down and said, you know what, there is no honesty in this book. You've expected all this honesty of Zach about whether or not he was there. And I've spoke to, spoken to him about that but you've put no honesty from yourself in it. And I just, this sounds cheesy, but it's true. I spent two weeks writing through the book from start to finish and just being honest about myself. And one of the first things I put in was I did this story because I wanted to win a big award and get a good reputation and all those things that people do feel, but normally we don't admit to. Yeah, I think journalists are uh, the last to admit that, really. Yeah, we're a terrible species. A craven, ambitious... <laughs> Zealous bunch. Um, even one of the barristers on this case, John Tippett QC, suggested that sometimes justice requires the law to be ignored because of the injustice of the law. That's a very simple sentence, but there is, there's a lot going on there. Is there really nothing that Judge Mildred could have done? No. So it gets complicated. So... In the Northern Territory, the way the murder laws are written are that if you agree to take part in a murder, which Zach was found to have done, then even if you pull out, but you don't try and stop the murder from happening by, say, calling up the police and saying, my mates are about to commit a murder, then you are guilty of murder. Not accomplice, accomplice or, or, you know... Second degree. No, you're right. just straightforward murder. Then, in the Northern Territory, they have these things called mandatory sentencing provisions, which aren't just in the Territory. New South Wales has got some, Queensland has got some. But in the Northern Territory, they've kind of got them on steroids. And so for murder, you go down for life, and life means life. And so the judge, basically, once he had a guilty verdict from the jury, even though he said, I don't think you were there, and basically the jury had to find Zach guilty because Zach did agree to take part in the murder and didn't try and stop it happening, then the judge had no choice but to send him down for life. And you saw this a while back, so going back a few years, the Northern Territory had mandatory sentencing for property crimes. And so you had a bunch of people, particularly Indigenous people, who were going down for long, decent-length prison terms for stealing a bottle of beer, for stealing stationery, for stealing toys. There was one kid who stole a bunch of toys brought them back to the police station, I think the same day or the day after, handed them back, he still went down and he was locked up. That's kind of where you end up with mandatory sentencing because it takes the discretion away from the judges to say, this is right, this fits the crime. So all the politicians decide what fits the crime. Yeah, it really is a clear example of the law kind of tripping over itself to try and achieve an outcome that 
yeah, the community is baffled with, as, as you must have been. Having continued with this story and despite the challenges that you, you mentioned, pulping some of the book that you'd already written... Oh, so right, it was really bad. <laughs> Probably for the best, not <laughs> award-winning. Uh, do you think what you learned or gained from getting to know Zach and the people involved now feels worthwhile? Yeah, I do. I So I did some reporting on this case for... I was working for the Australian newspaper at the time and then I thought I'd done pretty well. I think we did win an award. Yeah, we did, but not the, not one of the really big awards. Not the one I was hoping for. Um, they might take that award back off me now. Um, <laughs> but anyway, I was, I was kind of proud of myself. Like I, I, you know, I, I, I satisfied my ego, done what I set out to do. And then I got this message from Zach, which was passed through his dad, who called me up and he said, um, Zach says you need to grow some balls and defend him. And I was like, oh... Right, I don't know if I'm up for defending Zach. Because I never in my own head had really squared away if I thought Zach was guilty or not. I was up for reporting the story and up for being the, the award-winning reporter, but I hadn't really made peace with myself. You didn't want to pick a side. Yeah. And he was saying you have to pick a side. It's not just enough to to be in the papers. You actually have to commit yourself to this story. Um and so I promptly did nothing about it for several years. And then I kind of came back to it. But what I did do was I started writing letters to Zach. Um, and it coincided with a bunch of personal stuff. I sort of moved. I left my job. I moved house. I moved country. I had a real long fight with depression, which was really quite unpleasant. And in the midst of that, I kind of, to be honest, I reached out to Zach and again, this is me being honest after the fact. I reached out to Zach because I didn't really have a lot of friends where we were living. And I was going through this thing and it wasn't fun. I hated the job I was doing at the time. And I was doing like a four-hour commute there and back to get to this job I hated. And Zach became the person I could tell these things to that I wasn't really up for telling people in the flesh. And I remember Zach actually wrote back and he said, look, you know, add up all the time you spend every day commuting to this job you hate. And you add it up over a year, and then that's the number of hours you're not spending with your family. And I actually quit my job after that. And then... So who know, was saving who here? Well, that, yeah, I hate that question, because I have been asked that question since. Yeah, in the end, Zach did, did do a pretty good job of saving me. Why do you hate that question? Because I don't like the vulnerability that comes with answering that question. I don't think any big, tough, award-winning investigative reporter really likes to admit that. Um, but he did. Like, I needed a friend. He was a friend and he was completely open. And, you know, I'm not saying that my situation was comparable to being locked up for a murder you actually didn't do. Um, but I could be completely honest with him. And then we spent, we've spent about... I forget if it's three, four or five years writing letters now. And I've got, I've, the stack of letters is, is, is solid. It's, it, you, could, you could probably knock someone out with it. And I've been into prison to see him in the flesh. And he has... And then I, after all of that, because that was all fun, um, my daughter got cancer and that was two, three years now of a pretty tough life. And again, I needed somebody to talk to. And, and Zach became somebody to talk to. And uh, Zach's family, actually, <laughs> were, were pretty bloody good to me. And, you know, looking back on all of that, I have got 
from my relationship with Zach a huge amount of support and solace and um, I'm deeply grateful for having him in my life. And he has changed the way I think about myself. He's changed the way I think about him. He's changed the way I think about this murder completely. So there's a huge kind of, you know, in the book, there's this huge kind of unraveling of where I started to where I end up. And I'm kind of, I'm a bit more broken down and a bit more uh, honest by the end of the book, a lot more honest. A lot of people would be aware of your daughter Poppy's health battles, the cancer that you mentioned. And a lot of people really uh, found a connection with you when you were tweeting about those yeah. battles and the honesty and the rawness of, of that experience. I think people want to know how, how she's going. Look, Poppy's great. She, we were back in hospital recently. And it's funny now because Poppy, it's not funny at all. It's as funny as cancer gets. Um, Poppy is now old enough to be aware that I have spoken publicly about the treatment she's been going through. And there was a period when she said, you've got to stop doing it. And I did. And then recently I've gone back and I said to her, look, how are you feeling about this? And she said, yeah, it's good, actually. But you need to get my permission first. So I'm speaking with her permission to, to talk about it. Um, she's doing really well. She finished, she's got a cancer called neuroblastoma. And she was in two years of intense, I mean, a very intense cancer treatment. And then we moved out here pretty much after that. And to see her go from, she was down to about two thirds of her weight. She was genuinely sick with the treatment, not with the cancer, to living out in Sydney again, to diving into the sea, to playing in the waves, to doing cartwheels on the beach. Like the, the, the recovery from the treatment was incredible. She's since been back in hospital for some more treatment, uh, some surgery, um, which again, she lost about a fifth of her body weight through that process because there were some complications, but she's back. She's she's getting a suntan because the summer's coming. She's not quite doing cartwheels on the beach yet, but she will be. She's doing stupid TikTok dances. She is back. Look, one thing I learned about cancer is there's no yes or no answers. There's no, this is what is going to happen next. Every time you go into the doctor's, you think this will be the meeting where we get the answers. It's the unpredictability yeah. that really gets you. You walk out of every meeting knowing less or knowing that there's more uncertainties than when you walked in. So, you know, I'm just saying there's going to be a lot of uncertainty. But right now, Poppy is probably the best she has been for several years. And she's really happy. And that's great. I'm so pleased to hear that. What about your other family, Zach and his family? Any other uh, messages from them about your body parts? Uh, <laughs> he is due to get parole in uh, October 27th. How are things looking for his case? He... When I went in to see Zach the last time, uh, we, we've been talking about the book a lot. Uh, he's never read it because you can only send five sheets of paper in a letter into the prison. So I sent him the first like 20 odd sheets, you know, maybe 40 pages, but they had to go in five or four separate letters and not all of them got through. So he's had chunks of the book <laughs> out of order. And this is the, the, the beats, so, you know, the cut and paste method, and, you, know, you know, knowing choose your own adventure. <laughs> knowing me, I don't think I numbered the pages, but <laughs> so he's, he's read bits. Uh, but he went, I went in and I, he said to me, like, how does this book end? And I said, look, and he, he also said, like, you know, how does me and you and me end? And I said, look, the next, chapter is the one that comes after the book 
and it's the hardest chapter because that's the one you've got to write. And, you know, to get out of prison, which he's about to do, I mean, we're talking pretty soon now, days, weeks, um, he then has to start a life with 14 years in prison, having been locked up since he was barely a man um, or barely an adult. He, he's got a murder conviction. Like, how do you begin rebuilding a life with all of that? Look, he's, he's, I trust and hope he's going to be really good. He's, he's a genuinely smart, genuinely decent, yes, convicted murderer, genuinely decent, honest guy who wants to make the world better. He writes, he draws, he's got a job lined up, he's been offered a job, which is probably the key thing. Like, if he can find something where he's contributing to society, I think that will be a game changer. I'm hoping to go up and see him, but I think at the moment, and I've talked to his dad about this, just maybe step back and just let him kind of land. I think the next chapter is going to be genuinely hard, as it is probably for everyone who gets out of prison, irrespective of what put them in there. There's that unpredictability again. Yeah. Dan, thank you so much for being my guest, journalist and author Dan Box. His new book, The Man Who Wasn't There, is out now. Good to see you. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast of The Drawing Room with me, Andy Park. For more great conversations, search for The Drawing Room on the ABC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts.